Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Way up on top of a volcano called Mount Meager in coastal BC, gases steam out of holes in a glacier. This volcano isn't exactly asleep. The steam indicates that underneath the ice, the rock, and the earth, it's hot, really hot. And that's exactly why work is underway to dig down below the base of the mountain to try to suck up the scalding water and steam and use it as a huge source of green energy. A geothermal giant, magnitudes bigger than the heat pumps we know now. This week, we too dig down deep to discover what lies beneath the promise of geothermal energy. That promise is something the province of Alberta has set its sights on. We need to have that and conversation, oil and gas and energy like geothermal. So we see this as, as a, a standalone opportunity to bring in a new sector, to drive investment, to do things in Alberta better than, than anywhere else in the world, and to create jobs with that. This fall, the Alberta government tabled a bill setting up the regulatory framework for geothermal energy development. And given the ruling party's majority, it is expected to pass. Producer Molly Siegel is here with more. Hi, Molly. Hi, Laura. Why does the Alberta government want to get into geothermal? The big picture here is that there is a lot of potential to develop this resource. But another big reason is that there's some crossover in the skills between workers in the oil and gas sector and workers in geothermal development. I guess that's kind Um, of important given what's happening in the oil and gas industry, right? Because let's face it, some people are losing their jobs. So that must be a factor. Yeah, it's definitely a factor. And we just heard Alberta's energy minister, Sonia Savage, talk about that, that link to jobs that could come out of geothermal. And there's other experts who agree. I spoke to Sarah Hastings-Simon. She's a research fellow at the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy. So the oil and gas sector has a lot of transferable skills to offer to development of geothermal and transferable institutions. So the kind of regulation that, that happens within the oil and gas industry, the existence of a regulator that can play that role, those types of resources that exist because we have a, an existing oil and gas industry do transfer over. Where I see sometimes things being overstated, it would be the idea that, you know, all the workers in oil and gas could be retrained and redeployed within geothermal. The, the scale is probably, you know, the scale is off there. So some skills transfer, but it Maybe a stretch to say that it's going to be a match job for job. Okay, so so that is about the people involved in it, which is really important. But now, Molly, <laughs> I have a task for you. Tell me about the actual work they're doing, the basics of geothermal. Tell me how it works. Nice and simple. <laughs> yeah, nice and simple. I mean, this took me a little bit to wrap my head around because there are so many different types of geothermal, but really a helpful way to think of it, um, a, a description I came across in my research is the term mining for heat. So there's a difference between using geothermal to heat a building. That's shallow home heating. 
uh, things like heat pumps versus what heat is needed to generate electricity. And so you do need a much higher temperature to produce electricity, generally hotter than 100 degrees Celsius. Uh, and one of the ways to do that is to get those sources to mine them, so to speak, deep underground in hot reservoirs of water. And, and then finally, there are some heat sources that really stand out, things like volcanoes that are very, very hot and that produce just like way, way more electricity. So that's why a place like Mount Meager would be a really desirable place to generate geothermal energy. Okay, you have your heat source. Now, how are those sources of heat actually turned into electricity? I don't want to get too in the weeds because honestly, it can get just overly complex because there are so many different technologies and setups. But overall, there are some basics. One of those components is steam, which can already be a part of a geothermal source. Um, or you can create that steam from geothermal fluid itself, or by using that hot source to heat another fluid, sometimes a fluid that's being injected directly into hot, dry rocks. But in any case, at some point, you need that steam, you need it to turn a turbine, and that generates electricity. As you said, that's simplified. So tell me something then about the risks. Okay, so there's two major risks here. And the first one that I want to talk about are the risks associated with injecting fluid underground into hot, dry rock, or in other words, fracking, but not for gas. Wait a second, fracking. That's a, a word that gets a lot of people's attention and you've got mine. So what are you talking about there? Yeah, I mean, it's worth paying attention to because in a couple places in Switzerland and in South Korea, it has led to earthquakes. Um, and it's actually one of the things that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, says needs to be managed carefully. And while there is potential for this particular kind of geothermal in Canada, the projects that we're going to hear more about today are using a different method. Primarily, they use geothermal salt water that's already deep underground. And, and that then is the, the second major risk that uh, you want to talk about here. And I think when we say salt water, the first thing to keep in mind is that this water is far saltier than ocean water. So we absolutely don't want this to get into our drinking water. And there are ways to manage that. One of those ways uh, includes the system itself. Um, there are systems that keep this water within pipes rather than exposing it. But the other risks with this is the possible presence of hydrogen sulfide, known as sour gas. And it can be at both volcanic and sedimentary sites. And that can be deadly. But I think it's interesting to point out that this is something the oil and gas sector manages for as well. So in terms of risk, that's not new and it's not unique to geothermal. Okay, so when you put it all together, what, what is the takeaway on the risks? Well, geothermal is a renewable energy. It doesn't have direct greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and to get to net zero, we're going to need a lot of stuff like this. We're going to need a lot of alternatives to fossil fuels. So where geothermal is possible, it can contribute to a low carbon future uh, alongside with other things like wind and solar. So let's come back to Alberta. Given all you've outlined here, does it make sense for Alberta to go down this path? Well, there are opportunities in Alberta, but there is also debate about how it should be done. The province has talked a lot about repurposing some of the inactive oil and gas wells for geothermal. If that happens, Sarah Hastings-Simon warns that some owners might try to skirt their cleanup responsibilities, including the costs, by pushing them as geothermal candidates instead. 
it's not an answer to the orphan well problem. So that's something that we really need to guard against in creating the regulatory framework that allows for well redevelopment, making sure that it's really being done, you know, in good faith for the purpose of redeveloping those wells and not being done simply to offload a liability. Okay, it's going to be interesting to watch how all of this unfolds in Alberta. Thank you, Molly, for telling us about it. Thank you, Laura. Okay, so that's the view on the policy side, but what about on the ground, so to speak? Steve Grasby is a research scientist with the Geological Survey of Canada and the president of Geothermal Canada. Hello. Hi there. We've seen recent news from Alberta that it's introduced a bill um, aimed at getting geothermal uh, underway, if you will, and the There's been some mention of using orphan wells or wells that have been idled from oil and gas being repurposed for geothermal. Is that possible? Well, it's not too too easy to use these petroleum wells for geothermal. And one of the the main reasons is that you need a much higher um, production rate of of hot water to make a geothermal plant work than you do um, for oil or gas. So, uh, you know, oil well diameters are typically much narrower than a, a standard geothermal well. So the, they're just not, you know, wide enough uh, for a geothermal production. That being said, the old petroleum wells provide an enormous amount of data and information that we can use to, you know, better target where geothermal resources are in Alberta and other parts of Canada. They'll tell me more about that. The drilling gives us a lot of information of the sedimentary rocks that they drill through, and they would do tests for how porous the rocks are and also how easy it is for the water to move through rocks. And um, also they would measure temperature. This idea of taking hot water or steam out of the ground and using it to turn turbines made me think, well, isn't that a finite resource? The heat that uh, we're looking for in geothermal is produced just by natural radioactive decay of elements in the Earth's crust. And there's more you know, than enough that's going to last for billions of years and the, you know, the sun will probably explode before we run out of heat from geothermal energy. So it's, uh, we have other problems that we have to worry about. <laughs> I guess but, so. <laughs> yeah, but, but in terms of a, like a reservoir of, of heat that we're producing, then you have to be more cautious that if you produce it at too high of a rate, then you can deplete the pressure in the reservoir or deplete the fluids that are in the reservoir so that you can't maintain this production for a long time. So it's, it's just how you manage the production rates and, and reinjection that becomes the key thing for sustainability. I want to talk about Mount Meager in British Columbia. You are actually leading a, a team exploring geothermal energy on Mount Meager. Tell me what the potential opportunity is there. Yeah, so Mount Meager, this was first explored back in the 80s, and they had drilled some wells at Mount Meager and discovered just a tremendous resource there. They have you know, waters that are 250 degrees Celsius that are at about two kilometers depth. So this is just a world-class thermal resource in terms of the temperatures they found. And But the problem at that time was when they tried to produce it, they couldn't get enough waters out to make enough energy that would pay for the cost of developing the facility. So then we had this challenge where we know there's a resource there, but we have to find the right rock types in the subsurface where you can uh, produce you know, the fluids at a high enough rate to make it all economic. 
And that's the focus of our research program is to try to use some new tools that we can image inside the mountain. Okay. I've been to Mount Meeker. I, I did a story there a couple of years ago on, on it. And one of the things that a volcanologist explained to me who was doing research on there, he said, this is a rotten mountain. And I, it was a question of not if, but when a large slide was going to happen. It doesn't sound like a very stable place for you to be looking at building a geothermal plant. I mean, one aspect of a geothermal plant is actually it has the smallest footprint of any type of energy resource. So you don't need a big plant. And also, uh, you know, we you know part of the work we're doing is looking at the hazard risk in the Mount Meager area. You know, you can build infrastructure where there is very minimal risk for, for landslide. So far, we've been talking about Alberta and British Columbia, but I'm wondering which other provinces and territories have the potential to develop geothermal energy? Well, I would say that, you know, everywhere in Canada has potential, but it sort of depends on how you want to use it. And we see electrical potential in southern Saskatchewan, western, northwestern Alberta, uh, throughout large parts of British Columbia, the Yukon and Northwest Territories. And then our dominant energy use in Canada is, is actually heating. So it's space heating or industrial uh, heat use. So actually we need more heat than we do electricity. And you can really you know, produce heat from waters really across the country. Now, gathering this kind of data and, and information about the potential across Canada seems like a huge task. And I'm wondering how you got all of this information together. Most of the data that we have in Canada was either derived from the petroleum industry, and then the, most of the other data was collected when we had this uh, federal geothermal energy program that ran for 10 years during the energy crises. So that was from 1975 to 85. And where was the research? Where did you find it? We found it in our own files, and we found it in you know boxes in people's garages. <laughs> it was at a, a time when... You know, everything was recorded on paper, right? And then paper got put into boxes when people retired and then boxes got moved around. And so we, we did a lot of uh, sleuthing and and just tracked down all the the data that they collected during that time and were able to sort of rescue it. Why was the research abandoned in the first place? What motivated the program at that time was a concern over access to energy. So during the energy crisis, the major concern was is there sufficient energy supply for Canada at a reasonable cost? And that's what you know drove that program at the time. And when the energy crisis ended, it, I think it just lost interest in alternative energy resources. How big a role do you think geothermal can play in Canada reducing greenhouse gas emissions? In terms of the total energy potential, the geothermal energy in Canada is about a million times more than what Canadians use. But then question is how much of that potential can we access at a reasonable cost? That's really one of the biggest costs for geothermal development is drilling those deeper wells. Once they're set up, they're, they're very inexpensive. This must be um, gratifying for you to, to look at this work that is happening now um, after you played detective <laughs> and went into those dusty garages and got all of the documents together on this. You know, really, when I started this about 20 years ago, I had just blank looks when I mentioned the word geothermal and, and people weren't quite sure what it meant. Canada has a tremendous potential. It just, just has to be realized, I guess. All right, Steve Grosby, thank you for your time. Yeah, well, thank you. Now, that potential Steve referred to is what Kirsten Marcia is tapping into.
Well, I thought there was a unique opportunity at, at a time in my life where I'd worked not just in oil and gas, but in, in other conventional resource exploration, where I could take some of those experiences and, and skill sets and unleash them for the first time on a, on a renewable energy project. Marcia is now the CEO of Deep Earth Energy Production in Saskatchewan. And as you heard, she used to work in oil and gas, but she knows her province has to change with the times. Saskatchewan has had a long holiday um, in inexpensive power production, you know, using coal and natural gas. And of course, that's changing with our requirement to uh, for, for renewables to meet Canada's goal for net zero emissions. And so the idea of, of geothermal in Saskatchewan, which actually can supply a baseload power supply, which can replace coal and natural gas, um, was a pretty attractive option for us. And it's not just the kind of power she hopes to replace, it's some jobs too. So we have you know, drilling engineers, we have reservoir engineers, we have geophysicists, we have geologists. Now, all of these guys spent their career developing and exploring for, for oil and gas all over the world. So to take that skill set now and, and redeploy it, exploring for and developing a clean, renewable energy is a wonderful transition. So for Marcia, that transition can only happen with some help from the government. The federal funding needs to continue to happen on these projects because a geothermal resource is more challenging than, than wind or solar. It's, it's done very cheaply and, and very easily. Versus geothermal, there's a much greater resource risk because you need to be able to drill into something you can't see or touch or feel, then change your, your development plan accordingly to, to what the resource is, is capable of. Kirsten Marcia's company is one of a handful of geothermal projects in Canada. Another is up in northern British Columbia at the site of the Clark Lake oil and gas field. The Fort Nelson First Nation got the geothermal rights early this year, and it sees potential beyond power. We caught up with Chief Charlene Gale. Hello. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Why did you want to get involved in a geothermal project at the Clark Lake oil and gas field? The Clark Lake Geothermal Project has always been very um, prominent in our area. It's been a gas um, play that has been in the territory for many decades. And our members have always been curious about that gas because when it would come out of the ground, the pipeline and the infrastructure would be um, clear of snow. And so that obviously told us that it was a hot gas. And so we're excited to explore this project and possibly having the potential to produce electricity in our territory that has direct heat aspects to it as well. And this can all be done without burning a fossil fuel such as coal, gas or oil. All good things. Um, the, the plan is um, not only to provide energy for the Fort Nelson First Nation, but also to sell energy to BC Hydro. Is that right? Correct. Um, we would uh, definitely look at selling our electricity to BC Hydro. It is obviously something that we want to do because currently our electricity is generated from natural gas or it's imported from Alberta. So the Fort Nelson First Nation Territory is heavily reliant on fossil fuels for power. And it also could provide a great access to stores of heat that could be used for industry. It could be used for tourism and it could also heat our homes. Now, Chief Gale, um, it's clear this is not just about getting electricity for, for the First Nation, but it's about other things, including, I'm imagining, other benefits for your community. Can, can you paint a picture of how Fort Nelson First Nation will benefit? 
Well, greenhouse production is obviously an opportunity we'd like to explore. We have some of the best rich farming soil in BC. Our community has a community for farm. And so we're pretty excited about the possibility of producing fresh food in our region, especially in the middle of winter. We want to see the quality of life change in the north. And we really think that this project had revolutionized the north and provide that aspect of fresh food to our neighbors as well. What we want to do is do our part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help the province of BC meet their clean energy BC mandate. Um, in the next four weeks, we do have to commit to our funders to come up with $6.3 million. Due to COVID, you know how challenging that can be. And with a depressed economy, Fort Nelson First Nation hasn't had uh, many revenues coming in to offset our operational costs. So in order for us to be successful, we are asking BC for their support. And what are they telling you? So the province of BC has indicated that they're very supportive of the project as it does meet their clean energy um, plan targets. And recently, the BC election put us a few steps behind, but we are hoping that we can get back on track. We are very confident that the BC government will continue to support us. The federal government has asked that we secure a commitment in writing from the BC government by the end of December to ensure that funding is secure. This is something that is so important to our people. We need the help of the BC government in order to get this at across the finish line. We talk about the importance to the community. I just want to ask you more specifically about jobs. What does it represent in terms of, of jobs for the First Nation? And how are you preparing to fill those jobs? So we are very lucky in Fort Nelson to have many trades in the area. Unfortunately, with the downturn in the economy with oil and gas, we lost a lot of families that had to move elsewhere to find work. A lot of people had to get up and leave their their lives or their homes. And you're going to, what, provide training? Yeah, so right now we're working with our community education authority to provide training. There's a lot of aspects that have to uh, be done when it comes to this project. Currently, you know, we have people in our community that could provide the trades, but we'll also have to provide training to our members and to our youth so that they can uh, be a part of this project. Chief Gale, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate you uh, having me on your show today. Now, we contacted the B.C. government for comment. It says it's aware the Fort Nelson First Nation is looking for that $6 million commitment, and it says it looks forward to engaging on the Clark Lake Geothermal Project. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, believe it or not, while large-scale geothermal power might be new for some parts of this country, some people figured out how to harness heat from below the ground a long time ago. Ralph Ross is a pioneer of the practice, and I tracked him down at his home in Amherst, Nova Scotia. That's not far from the old Spring Hill coal mine. 
That's a mine tainted with tragedy that was sealed after the deaths of more than 100 miners in 1956 and 1958. I've lived here all my life, and back in my early days, it used to be a coal mining community. And so uh, we used to play a lot around the coal mines and around everything else. So we knew the coal mines very well. We noticed in one part of the mine where they used to throw out the old coal or stone that they didn't want. And uh, there was water used to run from out of the ground and across the road and down the ditch and into a swamp. And it always struck me odd that that swamp, even in the middle of winter, was always green. The water that was coming out was quite warm. But this water was very close to 70. It was around 70 degrees. Ralph, now 70 years old, is talking Fahrenheit there, not Celsius. In his 20s, he studied engineering, and he started to think about that warm water. And when some holes started to open up above the mine, he had an idea. What happened seemed like a little miracle as far as I was concerned. So a bunch of friends of mine hooked a rope on me, and we lowered me underground into this tunnel. And it it was amazing. It was in March that I'd done this. It was hot underground. The sweat was running off me. I took about 10 steps forward and spang, I walked into water. And what I actually walked into was the top of an old coal mining level. That level went two and a half miles into the ground and it was all flooded. And it was circulating very, very, very fast. In that moment, Ralph knew it could work. Pump out the warm water coursing through the veins of the mine and use it to heat buildings, kind of like a giant radiator. He took his idea to City Hall. And so the mayor said, Ralph, you know, we kind of believe in it. So we jumped on a plane, went to Ottawa, and met with some of Canada's top scientists. Well, here I am, this little country boy out of a coal mining community, sitting in front of some of Canada's leading scientists. And I gave them my theory. that you could pass around the room. And I said, is there a problem with it? They said, no, that's the bad part. We can't find a problem with it. Oh, gosh. (laughs) You were too smart. (laughs) We can't find a problem with it. Ralph left Ottawa with federal funding to test his theory, and that was just the beginning. The Spring Hill Mine, which was the site of the deaths of so many miners over the decades, which once produced one of the dirtiest forms of fuel on the planet, is now producing clean, safe geothermal heat, for an industrial park, a community center, and more. And Ralph Ross? He ended up volunteering his time on a few other similar projects in Canada, the United States, even Germany. His real job, though, is running his refrigeration business in Spring Hill. He's modest, but he's also stubborn. I'm just a little guy, and I sit in the corner, and I don't brag about it and I don't tell anybody and you're the first call I've had in a while on this. I've done a couple TV shows and it's just to let others know if you have an idea bring it forth. Try it. And don't think anything is stupid because it's not. Getting heat out of coal mines or out of water, to me it wasn't stupid. Everybody else thought it was so stupid but that was a big fight. He drives by that site every day knowing it's still sending heat to a growing number of businesses. Reliable heat and emissions-free. But today, it's still working, it's working good, and I'm still proud of what I've done. Ralph Ross spoke to me from Amherst, Nova Scotia. That's it for us this week, but before we go, we'd like your help on a future episode. 
Climate change can be scary, and experts say both the impacts and the anxiety can hit young people harder. So parents, do you struggle with talking to your kids about climate change? And young people, do you feel your concerns are being heard? Email us, earth at cbc.ca. We want to hear from you. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team. Associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.